following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. We're continuing on in the study of the Gospel of Luke in our series that we're in Titled, uh, that's been entitled Encountering Jesus. And we have uh, for this morning this text that comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. And so we'd invite you to turn there in your Bibles if you have them with you this morning. Otherwise, you can follow with the text that's shown up here on the screen. And it reads, starting in verse 9 of Luke 18, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to the house, to his house, justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. Let's pray. God, be gracious to us by your mercy Minister to us in this hour. Open our eyes to see the truth that is found in your words, so that out of that truth we might have life. Give us eyes to see what made this tax collector justified in your eyes before you, while the Pharisee was sent away unredeemed. That we would follow in the example of this tax collector and live the life that you desire. Pray the prayers that you desire from us. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this passage in Luke 18, verse 9 to 14, is the second out of two stories that are told back to back about prayer. The last one, the first one, uh, in verses 1 to 8, we looked at last week, uh, about the desperate widow uh, pleading her case before an unjust judge. And although she was in a hopeless situation, in the end, she was able to get what she wanted from him because she simply pestered this evil judge until he finally gave in and gave her what she wanted. And as we saw last week, Jesus' point is that the widow was able to prevail with this evil guy who cared nothing about her or, frankly, even about justice uh, because uh, she was persistent. She persevered. And the message to us was how much more confidently should his disciples persevere in prayer out of the understanding that we have a heavenly father who delights to give good things to us. In other words, we need to learn how not to give up so easily in the things that we ask for, but to persevere, to be patient, to continue in that prayer. And as I mentioned last week, uh, Our efforts alone to change the circumstances or the people in our lives 
um, often will lead to greater harm than good. Uh, One of the great lessons of discipleship is to recognize our limitations, our inability to often move and change the circumstances that are distressing us in our life, and that we must discover that often it is only through the breakthroughs that happen in prayer as God's power is demonstrated in a situation that we can overcome and truly find the breakthroughs that we need in our life. But as we saw, that takes perseverance. That takes patience. That takes faith, ultimately. And that's my sincere hope for every one of us here at ICC, is that that would be a journey that you would go on, that that would be an invitation of Jesus that you would accept to have some things that matter so intensely and yet you are utterly crippled by, brought to your knees by, and yet to experience extended seasons of intercession and prayer for those things and then to experience the breakthrough that God can give in those areas of your life. I pray that every one of us would have testimonies like that at the end of our journey with God. And as I said last week, It can get confusing. I mean, you pray about something and God doesn't give it. And you sort of wonder, am I praying for the wrong things? Am I praying with the wrong motives? And sometimes that can totally unhinge us from being able to push through in prayer. And as I said last week, I think at some level, I mean, you're sort of wondering, is this an inappropriate prayer? You know, can I pray for the the career advancement? Can I pray for that trip to Europe? Can I pray for a bigger house? And at the end of the day, you're sort of stuck when I don't know if this is what God wants. But as I suggested last week, it's okay if you're not quite sure if everything is appropriate that you're asking for. Still pray for it because that's better than not praying about it. Because when you don't pray about it and you just keep it as a private matter for yourself, then it's really never going to get addressed by God, is it? Because it's a control issue. It's really saying, God, I'm not going to pray about this because I don't want you to mess with these plans. I'm going to get that bigger house whether you like it or not. And if I pray, you might begin to do a work in that. And I don't think I want that work in my life. And so I'm saying, even if you're not even sure if your motives are pure or if your, your heart is right, just by the virtue of bringing it to God in prayer, you invite his voice into that. And I believe that if, now obviously there are prayers that you can pray that don't open. It's, it's just Santa Claus prayers, like give me this God, give me that God. That kind of prayer, chances are your heart isn't going to be open to change. But if you genuinely come with a humble heart, an open heart to seek God's will in this, not my will, but yours be done, then it's a journey, right? God may give you the bigger house. He may give you the promotion. Or he may dig up some of that scum that's lying at the bottom, right? And as he stirs that up, you begin to realize the darker motives that are driving the things that you are craving in life. And that can be the work. That can be the answer to that prayer is God is saying, I'm not going to give you the bigger house. I want you to actually address the deeper issues that are causing you to seek these things constantly from me. But underneath all of this is the singularity of that promise that I am for you. I desire to give good things to you. So persevere. Be patient. Push through in that prayer life, that robust, active, faith-centered prayer life. Well, like that last story in verses 1 to 8 about the persistent widow, in the second story that we're looking at this morning, it also has 
two characters. The first is a Pharisee, and the second is a tax collector. Now, for many of us who've grown up in the church, hearing stories about Pharisees and tax collectors, we, we have a totally distorted understanding of these two classes of people that we find throughout the Gospels. Um, and it's absolutely critical that we understand how these men, these types of men were regarded in Jesus' day. Otherwise, you miss the whole point of the story. The whole force of it, it gets lost to us. Uh, as I mentioned before, if you try to identify Jesus with one particular type of person in his day, in other words, you try to label Jesus or put him into a particular bucket about the kind of people that he most resembled in his day, here's the truth. If you were a sociologist, if you were a historian, an anthropologist, you would put Jesus into the Pharisee bucket. You would. That was the label that would make the most sense. Because Pharisees were highly respected religious leaders in Jesus' day. They made extraordinary efforts to obey the law. Literally, Pharisee is the separated ones. They didn't live like the average Jew. They lived a life apart out of their desire to please God by obeying the law. Unlike so many of the other religious leaders of Jesus' day who were basically morally bankrupt, who were only in it for political advancement or for the money, these Pharisees were considered the pure ones. These were the guys that didn't sell out. These were the separated ones. And yet, despite that superficial resemblance to the Pharisees, one of the great surprises of the Gospels is that the Pharisees became the greatest enemies of Jesus. And Jesus attacked them more than any other group. It's, it's, a, it's a genuine shock. He ends up calling them fools and hypocrites and whitewashed tombs. Why? Because though they look so clean on the outside, their inside was dirty. The Pharisees' righteousness was only external behaviors, religious motions. They hadn't experienced the true inward change of the heart that God demanded. And so Jesus presents us with a Pharisee who comes to the temple to pray. Interestingly, his prayer begins with thanksgiving to God. But it's also interesting that that's the last reference that he will make to God in his prayer. Because everything that follows after thanks to God is about himself. It's striking how often the first person pronoun I shows up in his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I think Jesus is emphatic here in trying to make his point that this Pharisee's sense of righteousness came completely from his performance, from what he was able to do in the eyes of God that he thought made him look good. And to make it even more specific than that, his confidence came not only from his moral life that he lived, but by comparing that moral life with others around him. 
I'm sure you've heard of the saying that you don't actually have to outrun the bear. You only have to outrun the guy that's running next to you, right? I mean, that's as fast as you need to be. That was the theology of the Pharisees. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to be better than this guy standing next to me. And if those are the rules of the game, I win. I win. Because God knows we fast more and pray more and give more than any other Jew around us. But this is why Jesus was so hard on them. That comparison game that you play blinds you to the depth of your sin by how much you don't measure up to God's standard. That's why repeatedly in the Gospels, Jesus calls them blind. You blind fools. You blind guides. You blind leading the blind. Alan Craft says, Trying to be good can actually keep us further from God than sin ever will. Now, that's a pretty striking claim, isn't it? Trying to be good can actually keep us further from God than sin ever will. The tax collector repented and was immediately accepted by God, but the, quote, good person who has diligently kept his list is further removed from experiencing God's acceptance because he doesn't even realize he has a sin problem. By hiding ourselves in our good behaviors, we remove ourselves from the impact of fully experiencing the gospel. Hear what he's saying? saying, It's crazy, but your good works are keeping you from God. Why? Because you're hiding behind them to find your righteousness. And that is blinding you to the full gospel message that none of us are good enough in our own efforts to please God. You see, the Pharisees were obsessed with this idea of righteousness. This was a category that meant everything to them. In other words, for them, righteousness was about how do I find approval in the eyes of God? How do I know that I have lived a worthwhile life that is pleasing to him? It was the motivator that drove the entire life of a Jew. I think the truth, though, is most of us, especially if you didn't grow up in the church, have a hard time identifying with this motivation of righteousness. It's not a category that's very meaningful in modern American life. But what I would argue is that the Jews' obsession with righteousness is universal to all of us. Because whether you're religious or not, whether you believe in God or not, I think there is something existentially woven into the very DNA of human experience that causes us to want to try to find something that makes us Feel that our life has been worthwhile, that it has been meaningful. The Jews use the language of righteousness, but for us, we may be haunted by something, by another term. And I shared this with you before, the confession of the great uh, famous author Kurt Vonnegut, uh, who confessed his own struggle with the search for meaning and a sense of worth in his life. He said, A friend of mine once spoke to me about what he called the existential hum, the uneasiness which keeps us moving, which never allows us to feel entirely at ease. 
He had tried heroin once. He said he understood at once the seductiveness of that narcotic. For the first time in his life, he was not annoyed by the existential hum. I would describe the hum that is with me all the time as embarrassment. I have somehow disgraced myself. The existential hum. Kurt Vonnegut's cosmic embarrassment. It's all really getting at the same thing, isn't it? This nagging feeling of disgrace, of failure that seems to chase every one of us. With painful honesty, Vonnegut confesses that many of of his family members had shunned him. Despite the acclaim that he achieved in the public sphere. Most of his family, growing up with Midwestern values, found his books to be too vulgar to read. His uncle, to whom he had even dedicated one of his best-selling novels, refused to read it for himself. Even deeper than the way they shunned his books because of their vulgarity was the shame he felt in breaking the long-standing family tradition that went on for generations that none of the Vonnegut's ever divorced. They all died with their marriages intact, except for Kurt. It was one of the only divorces in his extended family. No matter what Kurt Vonnegut accomplished as a critically acclaimed best-selling author, that sense of failure and embarrassment haunted him for his entire life. So he writes, So I am embarrassed about the failure of my first marriage. I am embarrassed by my older relative's response to my books. But I was embarrassed before I was married or had written a book. A bad dream I have dreamed for as long as I can remember may hold a clue. In that dream, I know that I have murdered an old woman a long time ago. I have led an exemplary life ever since. But now the police have come to get me with incontrovertible evidence of my crime. Have I really killed anybody, even in a a war? Not that I know of. Maybe I have forgotten. I await the police. Like a criminal waiting for the police to come knocking on his door at any minute, Vonnegut feels an embarrassment for his entire life that he could not fully understand. And I wonder if you can identify with Vonnegut's confession. Have you ever felt the weight of embarrassment for your life? Maybe you try to compensate for it by becoming as successful as you possibly can in your career or through your family. Or maybe you distract yourself from that embarrassment with a steady but constant stream of entertainment and trivial amusements that drown out that existential hum. Or maybe you medicate yourself out of that embarrassment. Or maybe you are like this Pharisee. Maybe you are like the Pharisees who try to compensate for this nagging feeling of inadequacy by comparing themselves with other people. By playing the religion game and saying, I win, I'm better than you. What Jesus is trying to say is, none of these things can provide the lasting answer to that existential hum, the nagging cosmic embarrassment 
that haunts us all. That sense of inadequacy that I don't measure up. That hunger for righteousness. To be vindicated and validated and know that my life counted for something. Jesus is saying, you will not find the answer in the prayer of this Pharisee, in the life of this Pharisee. Well, the question is, where can we find the answer? Where can we find this life? Well, it's at this point that Jesus introduces us to a most unlikely character to provide us the answer. He does it in the form of this tax collector. Now, here again is the, the translation problem. When we think about tax collectors in the Bible, we think about noble people. We think about Matthew, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, who left his tax collecting booth to follow Jesus and become one of the sacred 12. We think about Zacchaeus, who climbed that sycamore tree, and after becoming saved in a spectacular fashion, gave half of his worldly possessions to the poor. In other words, we romanticize tax collectors in the Bible like Hollywood romanticizes the proverbial prostitute with a heart of gold. Do you know what I'm talking about? Anyone ever watch Pretty Woman with Julia Roberts? Every prostitute in Hollywood is portrayed as a misunderstood woman with a heart of gold, aren't they? Um, but the, here is the truth. The tax collector was not a romantic figure. He was not a good person. In fact, the truth is, tax collectors were about as bad as you could get. These were scum of the earth. These were people who betrayed their own people and joined the enemy in order to get rich. They used their power, they used the authority of the Roman government to extort money from fellow Jews, even the poorest among them. They would take the last penny out of the hands of a widow in order to line their own pockets with just a little more lucre. I think substituting tax collector with something like a pimp, or maybe even worse, a pedophile, helps to carry the emotional weight of what Jesus was trying to portray in this tax collector. This guy had done horrible things in his life. Things that haunted him in sleepless nights. And he knew it. He knew it. It's like being listed on the sex offender registry, right? I mean, have you ever gone online and seen who the sex offenders are that are living in your neighborhood? It's actually rather frightening, but the truth is any of us can do it. It's knowledge that's out there in the public domain. These people wear a scarlet letter for the rest of their life. Everywhere they go, they carry that label, sex offender. It's like that. There is nowhere to run. Nowhere to hide. Every village knows who the tax collector is in their town. You, you can't put on a hoodie and show up at the temple and think no one is going to notice. And we're like, there, guess who, just, guess who came to the temple today? What is this guy doing here? 
But here is the funny thing. That very mark of shame, that very source of embarrassment, the very curse actually became a blessing in disguise for this guy. Because unlike the Pharisee, he made no attempt to appear righteous in the eyes of God or in front of others. Instead, Jesus tells us in verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the crazy thing about this story. Is the pimp, the pedophile, the dirtbag, is the one that walks away from the temple that day, saved, redeemed. Jesus is not minimizing or excusing the horrible things that this man has done in his life. But the point is that the depth and the obvious nature of this man's sin enabled him to seek and find a grace that the Pharisee was too proud to ask for. And that's the mystery of grace, isn't it? The people that seem to be right at the door of heaven are the ones that are not going to get in. And the ones that seem so far from God are the ones that will enter. You know, it's interesting that in almost all English Bibles, it is translated as, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But the literal translation is not a sinner, but the sinner. In other words, what the tax collector says is, God be merciful to me, the sinner. I am not trying to minimize my guilt and saying that I'm a sinner like everybody else. We're all sinners. I'm not even trying to compare myself with anyone else. As far as I am concerned, God, all that matters to me is I am the one and only sinner that needs help in this present moment. It's me. I'm not even looking self-righteously at that Pharisee in his pride and his judgmentalism. I don't even care about that guy. I come to the altar this day because I am the sinner in need of mercy this day. Mark chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, we find this interesting story. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the, quote, sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is not saying that there are some people that are so spiritually healthy like you Pharisees because you're doing such a good moral job that you don't need my help. He's not saying that, is he? His point is all of us are sick and dying. But the truth is there are some of us that are not willing to admit it. If you don't acknowledge your sickness, then the doctor can't help you. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24 says, The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. I think the truth is, all of us hope we can make it through life in the second category, don't we? 
But the truth may be that the real blessing is actually being identified with the first group. Here's what Paul is saying to Timothy. saying, listen, one day all of our dirt, all of our scandal, all of our garbage is going to be revealed. And the truth is we're going to all realize we're all in the same boat together. It's just that for some people, their sin was a lot more obvious in this life. And so their dirty laundry gets dragged out in front of everyone to see and say, look at her. I'm so glad I'm not like her. But in a way, that's a blessing, isn't it? Because by exposing your sin, by confessing your sin, you undo the power of that secret sin of trying to cover yourself and make yourself appear more righteous in the eyes of God and others than you really are. It is a blessing to have your sin exposed because in that exposure comes the ability to truly understand grace. It's the people that lie under the radar, hidden, who are living that good suburban middle-class life, who have never really faltered or stumbled in any scandalous way who I think are at most risk of not receiving salvation, who don't understand how far you are from what God demands. When the tax collector cries out for God's mercy, the actual word that he uses is an unusual one. It's not the common word that most Jews would use in everyday language for mercy. It actually is a technical word that literally means to make atonement for someone. In other words, what this guy was crying out to God in his prayer was this, God, make atonement for me, a sinner. In other words, this is what he was saying. Make a way for me so that your wrath will not come upon me so that I won't have to bear the guilt of my sin. In other words, the tax collector realized that there was nothing he could do to make up for all the wrong in his life. God must provide a solution. He must make atonement. There must be a solution provided from God alone. And so he says, atone for me. Figure it out, God. Make a way for me because I cannot provide the solution. You have to, God. You have to provide it. And that's why in verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is that great word justified that we looked at in the saved series that we just went through. To stand guilty before God as our judge and yet to be declared innocent in his eyes because of what Jesus did. This man was justified in the eyes of God. As Paul says in his letter to the Romans in chapter 3, verse 21 to 24, but now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's the message of the gospel. Whether you are a religiously devout Pharisee or scum of the earth tax collector, in the gospel there is no difference. All fall short. All have failed. And yet grace is available to all who would acknowledge their inadequacy and their need for it. And yet the great mystery is that one of the hardest things to do in life is to be saved by grace. Because there is something so pernicious inside every heart that longs to justify ourselves. To feel that I have done it by my strength, by my ability. The gospel says unless you can give up that game of self-righteousness, you cannot receive the gospel. You cannot receive eternal life. The World War II movie, Saving Private Ryan. The movie begins as the U.S. War Department discovers that in this singular family, three out of four brothers serving in the U.S. military had all been killed in the Normandy invasion to free occupied France from Nazi Germany. And they discover that the parents of this poor family are going to receive all three death letters on the same day. So George, General George Marshall decides that it would be too much if their fourth and final surviving son were to also die in active duty. And so the general orders a search party to find the last remaining son, James Francis Ryan so that he can be returned to his grieving parents. For Private Ryan, in essence, the war was over. He was going to be sent home. Captain John Miller, played by Tom Hanks, gathers seven of his men who survived the Normandy invasion in order to find this Private Ryan. None of them are happy about this assignment. They all begin to gripe. Why should eight men risk their lives to save one? Why is Private Ryan's life more valuable than any one of our lives? This is the ethical dilemma that is at the heart of this movie. What's so valuable about Private Ryan that all of us should risk our lives to save him? And as the movie goes on and as One by one, members of the search party end up dying on this mission. I'm sorry, it's a spoiler, but the movie's a couple decades old, so if you haven't seen it yet, too bad, okay? There's going to be all kinds of spoilers in this. Um, One by one, members of the search party start getting killed by the Nazis. And this question becomes more and more poignant. What is so worthy of Private Ryan's life that all these men should lay down their lives for him? Finally, in one of the final scenes of the movie, as Captain Miller himself is dying, and he's bleeding out, and in his final words to Private Ryan, he whispers 
in Ryan's ear, James, earn this. Earn it. Those are his final words. Earn this. In other words, what Captain Miller was saying to Private Ryan is this. A lot of good men have died for you. Live. When you get home to the U.S., to your farm in the middle, Midwest, live such a stellar life. Live such an exemplary life that our sacrifice that we've made for you this day would have been worth it. Because isn't that the assurance that any of us would want if we sacrificed our life for somebody else? To know that our sacrifice was worthwhile? To know that the person that you died for was worthy of that sacrifice? If you died pushing someone out of an oncoming train, wouldn't you hope that he would live to one day discover the cure for cancer? But what if all he does is sit in his wife beater watching Netflix and eating cheese puffs until he dies of diabetes and heart disease one day? Would that life have been worth dying for? I would be upset, although I wouldn't be around to be upset. But I hope my surviving wife would be knocking on that guy's door every day saying, earn it, earn it, you know. (laughs) Put away those cheese puffs, shut down your laptop, and go out there and do something with your life because Dr. Steve gave his life for you, you know. I mean, I pray to God that my wife is as noble as that, that she would do that, right? It raises the question, who is worth dying for? Well, this is what the Bible tells us in Romans 5, verse 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what the gospel says. You were not worthy. You didn't deserve to be. There was nothing noble about you that made it logical that Christ would die for you. In fact, what the gospel says is, while you were a spitting enemy of God, living in rebellion, you, you thoughtless, insensitive husband, you, you porn-addicted sex addict, you, you greedy, self-centered, ambitious person living for yourself, You, you thoughtless parent, abusing your child. You, while you were in that worthless state, Christ died for you. This is the truth that that tax collector understood that day that the Pharisee was blind to. I, a filthy sinner, can ask nothing of you, but have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I have nothing to claim as leverage against you. But I ask for you to atone for me. Make a way for me. Let's pray. We have to understand how shocking 
this story must have been to Jesus' original Jewish audience. The audacity of Jesus to make a righteous Pharisee the villain in his story and to take a scumbag tax collector and turn him into the hero. It's utterly scandalous and ridiculous to anyone who would hear it. But Jesus says, there is a mystery and a truth in this story that you have to understand in order to understand the gospel. And it is this. In the eyes of God, no one is righteous. No one is worthy. It is only by grace you are saved. So when you come to the house of God to pray, be careful the heart, the attitude with you which you approach the throne of God. For you have to understand that the throne of God is a seat of mercy. And that mercy is available only to the sick and dying who recognize their situation. If I had written the story of the gospel, I would have made the Pharisees the ones who celebrated his arrival. But as crazy as it is, they would end up becoming his greatest enemies who would ultimately be responsible for crucifying him on a cross. And it was the prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners that found in Jesus Christ a message of hope. And I simply want to ask you this morning, with which group do you identify yourself? Maybe the truth is for most of us in this room, we are the people that Paul describes as the ones whose sins are going to follow after us. We don't bear a scarlet letter on our chest. Our sins are not so obvious to others. But there's something so freeing and powerful about the heart that is willing to confess sin nevertheless and say, I am no better than that tax collector. Here, but by the grace of God, go I. I am in need of mercy. I am the one in need of of your atonement. Make a way for me. I put away these foolish games of trying to find a righteousness in myself. I need your atonement. I need you to make a way for me. Can we just pray for a couple minutes? We're going to sing one song as we get ourselves ready to come to the Lord's table and to celebrate what he has done through that sacrament. So let's come before the Lord as we get ready to sing the song to the Lord.